Hey everyone, it's James Crepia from the Oregonian and Oregon Live bringing you the latest edition of Ducks Confidential. Quite a bit to go over on this week's show. Lots of news last week to encompass on the football front, on the women's basketball front in particular, and a lot going on in spring sports with the additional eligibility granted from the NCAA. We'll get to all of that, but we'll start with football on this edition of Ducks Confidential. We spoke with Mario Cristobal on Friday for the first time in just over three weeks since everything got turned on its head in the mass cancellation of all spring sports, spring practice, the spring sports championships in the NCAA, and obviously everything else going on in the sports world. Last we had spoken to Mario, it was after that fourth spring practice where, frankly, if the Ducks didn't practice at 8.45, 9 o'clock in the morning, they may not have had a practice that day. But because the practice was scheduled, and they were already there, and things were underway. A practice was held. But it was a awkward day at that time because the night before was when the news came out from the NBA and Rudy Gobert and all the rest. And then by the end of the evening, you had the Pac-12 and numerous other conferences announcing that they were going to finish out their men's basketball tournaments in empty buildings. And... Throughout that morning, while we were at the opening periods of spring practice for the Ducks, in the course of 30 to 40 minutes, basically the rest of the college sports world came to a screeching halt. And we hear from Mario Cristobal for the first time since then. It, it could have easily have been the day before in that not much else was supposed, quote-unquote, supposed to happen uh, on the Oregon football front. There was supposed to be a two-week break. They obviously missed out on the scrimmage at Hillsboro. We know that. But other than that, In terms of what was truly missed, the missed practices didn't begin until last week. Well, three weeks separated and a couple of missed practices separated. And we hear from Mario Cristobal. And first and foremost, it was good to hear from him that while he certainly can't get into a lot of specifics as to uh, player health and the like when it comes to medical tests, it's different. It's a little bit different when an injury happens in the course of a game and, and 50,000 people and millions watching on television at home uh, see something, and it's very obvious. Here, it's something a little bit different, uh, but it's good to hear from him, ask about uh, player health and how everybody is doing and whatever he could share on that front. He just said everybody's uh, healthy and accounted for and that they're using the virtual and online means that all programs are using, all teams are using, and I think basically everybody in every walk of life uh, in the country, if not the world, is using, uh, whether it's Zoom, whether it's FaceTime, whether it's lots of text messaging, emails, whatever the case may be, uh, people are staying in touch and coaches are in contact with their players uh, in the few hours they are presently granted right now. That's a couple hours a week. Uh, there has been a push to get it up from two to four hours a week for instruction, but nevertheless, obviously there's no on-the-field practices. There's no in-person contact of any kind. And unless players happen to be in the same area as each other, there's not even practicing between with with a teammate really going on much of anywhere. Almost all the players are at home right now. Uh, I believe a few are back in Eugene, but basically everybody is home and left at their own disposal to do what they can do to fit in both the class time that they need to do, which is obviously being done remotely, and the practices. Now, to the question as to football in the fall, we're going to have weeks and months to go over 
this discussion and this issue. But naturally, it came up in the conversation with Mario Cristobal on Friday. And while he had said he was, quote, very optimistic about football in the fall, he was asked about it a couple different ways. And each time it said he does not want to address and get down the road of all kinds of unknowns and hypotheticals. And there's just too many factors to go into it that we don't know about yet. And he's right, for one. And two, he's not going to be the one making the decision, folks. No football coach is. In fact, no athletic director is. So while it's great to see headlines and, you know, it's it's part of the job to ask people in authority uh, what they may think, feel, believe about certain things, it helps when you actually ask people with authority in the given subject matter. Asking Mario Cristobal about something he has no control over, or any other football coach for that matter, is kind of a fool's errand. Uh, and you see it. And it gets underscored, frankly, by the remarks of other coaches around the country who come off very poorly. Uh, Dabo Sweeney at Clemson, who may be a great coach, terrific coach, may be on his way to being an all-time coach, to go out and say that he was without a doubt, had zero doubt that there will be football in the fall and to wax poetic as he did on Friday without any semblance of medical background, science background and reference to none of those things just to say there's going to be football because I believe it. Well, it's nice to hear and that's terrific, but that doesn't necessarily, that carries no weight other than his name is Davo Sweeney and and he's coached a very successful football team, but he has no decision-making power in that regard. Uh, So it comes off weird when some coaches make such remarks where again, they're, they're in above their pay grade, and they're swimming in waters that they have no business swimming in. So frankly, how Mario Cristobal addressed it on Friday was the best way. Are they planning for things? Are they making some contingency plans? They realize the possibilities that are out there? Sure. But you're not going to go down every vote, every single one of them. Not on Friday, and not in the beginning of April. You know, there's way too much unknown right now. They may not know enough in May, early May, or late May. Now, Pac-12 Commissioner Larry Scott had said in an interview with both the L.A. Times and with John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News last week, he had laid out a timetable, one, the obvious, that yes, there's obviously huge, huge financial impact uh, to the football season, that goes without saying, but that the end of May, which the Pac-12 has suspended all, all activities, all team activities, through the end of May at this point, that in, when they get to the end of May, that that will be a a date on the calendar w- that could lead to some decision-making. Because sooner or later, when you get through May, if we have not been able to clearly show some sustained progress and mitigation of the coronavirus, and that that's still a major issue, and clearly, it, you know, depending, we're not going to go down on the news side of, of the issue here. Uh, read OregonLive.com, read many other news sources out there uh, for people who are chronicling that on the day-to-day and doing a great job doing it. But clearly there is great concern as to exactly how long this is going to take to play out and to get on the other side of and to get to the point where ordinary life and quote-unquote normal can 
be the norm again and what exactly that looks like and what it's going to take. While sport is certainly terrific and is a great uh, distraction and also of great value uh, both to the players, the coaches, fans, media, it is. But compared to some of the things that are going on day-to-day in life right now, uh, you do have to have some perspective here and recognize that in the reopening of every walk and facet of society, from businesses to massive organizations, including colleges and universities, until colleges and universities, until the presidents know how they're going to be able to reopen their campuses, reopen their dorms for those who have closed those, and how they're going to do it, when they're going to do it, what is the means by which, how can you say that you're going to have athletes back on campus to compete in whether it's football, baseball, basketball, hockey, it doesn't matter. How can you possibly say that that's going to happen before the rest or separately or distinctly? Or You have to have an answer for how you're going to operate under normal business operations in the first place before you get down to the pleasures and luxuries of life. And while they are certainly a very big component of the college experience for anybody at the college or university – and especially for the college athlete, they are still a luxury compared to the major issues that are going on in the day today. So again, not to go down that road entirely of all the many issues, That's we, we could spend a, a week, we could, hours uh, upon hours going down all the various ways. That's the point. It's unknown right now. There's too much to go over. We all need to just bide more time to get more information and see how things get handled on the ground. And it may be different from one municipality to another, one school to another, but they've all got to play one another. At one point, or not, whether it's within the conference or you've got non-conference games with a team like Ohio State coming to Eugene next season, scheduled to come in. You've got North Dakota State and Hawaii also on the schedule. And I uh, wrote a story last week on OregonLive.com. You can check out if you missed it about the non-conference game contracts and not about the payments Though if you want to see that, you certainly can. Uh, The issue is, is there a clause in the contracts regarding cancellation? Of course there is. And the force majeure uh, contract clause is in all three. And it speaks to and outlines uh, catastrophic events or other issues that would lead to a cancellation and that it wouldn't be a breach of contract if the game is canceled. Now, that certainly matters from UL Athletics' perspective, from a financial standpoint, because they're paying all three of those teams to come to Oregon this year. However, for fans who wanted to know first and foremost what the impact would be if, hypothetically, the Ohio State game had to get canceled, what would that mean? Would the series get delayed? Would it just be a one-off? What would happen? And the answer is, unfortunately, if it ever went down that road, and we're a long way from there, let's underscore, we are talking about something that is five months away from now. But, nevertheless, if that were to happen, then, yeah, unfortunately, from a fan's perspective, the Ohio State home-and-home would just turn into a one-off game between Oregon and Ohio State in 2021 in Columbus, Ohio. And I know that's not what you want to hear right now and what you want to think about right now, but that is what would happen in the long run if, if a cancellation had to happen under any circumstance. But, again, long way to go until we get there. But I outline it now because 
The first question is, is there something on paper that addresses cancellation? There is, and it's in all three contracts. So that's first and foremost. And then to the what would happen on each of them, and the North Dakota State game is a one-off in the first place. Ohio State was a home-and-home series, and the Hawaii series is this is the first of three meetings, and the meeting where Oregon pays Hawaii more than the other. Because in the subsequent games in 2023 and 2024, it's a de facto home-and-home so they exchange the same amount back-to-back years. Oregon pays Hawaii a million dollars this fall for that game, if that game is to be impacted in any way. But again, we've got, we're going to have months to go over all those. I lay that out there because we asked Mario Cristobal about it, and he, like he says, hoping for the best, planning for the worst. Elsewhere on the football front, several items both uh, related to the quarterback situation. One, earlier in the week, Oregon lands a commitment from graduate transfer quarterback Anthony Brown out of Boston College. And Brown was one of the more significant and prominent grad transfer quarterbacks available this offseason. You had Jamie Newman from Wake Forest, who if you go back now to just before the Rose Bowl, there was the report that Newman had gotten early interest from Oregon. And he did. Uh, At the time, you know, it was not entirely substantiated. Uh, and credit to Pete Thamel of, of Yahoo for reporting that at the time. Tried confirming it at the time. Was unable to. Then the Rose Bowl happens. And then very quickly thereafter, uh, Jamie Newman had gotten interest from programs all over the country, including Georgia, LSU, and plenty of others, and then subsequently chose to go to Georgia. So at that point, whether Oregon expressed interest or not was kind of a moot point. Newman had found his landing spot. In the meanwhile, Oregon obviously ended up signing two quarterbacks in its 2020 recruiting class. And Tyler Shuck was the was and still is, frankly, the presumptive favorite to have the starting job. Spring practice begins. And then now, Anthony Brown commits as a graduate transfer. The difference between Newman and Brown is a couplefold because they were both among the more prominent graduate transfer quarterbacks this offseason. Uh, one, Newman has a more proven resume. Uh, they both played in the ACC and both played for far from traditional football powers at Boston College and Wake Forest. But Newman had the longer, more proven resume. And part of the reason for that is Brown, while he was a three-year starter, had suffered ACL injuries in two of those years. He is coming off a torn left ACL that he suffered after six games this past season at Boston College and had a torn right ACL during his freshman season a couple of years ago. So this is a player who's had two major knee injuries uh, in his college career, and that's really unfortunate. That's brutal. Now, unheard of? No. Unprecedented? No. I've covered players who have had three ACL tears uh, and had multiple in the same knee. And obviously the probability goes up of re-injuring a knee after you do it for the first time. To then have it in both knees, you have not only a higher probability of either or, uh, suffering it again. But then if it is to happen, obviously that could be really, really brutal. You hope none of those things happen for any player who's in that position because, yes, the probability, unfortunately, does go up. Yeah, and having said that, I've covered players who have torn their ACLs in both knees, have torn one multiple times, and have not only gone on to finish their college careers and play productively, have then gone on to play professionally and done well. You know, now, do they have 10- and 15-year careers? No, they haven't gotten to that point, but it's not unheard of. So 
first and foremost, the news of landing a graduate transfer quarterback and a very good one. That's hard, hard to ever really complain about that. Uh, if you're, if you're a fan, uh, your team lands a quarterback and a, and a good quarterback. All right. Well, that's certainly uh, one thing to hear. Who is he? And what's he about? Well, again, he has the injury background. He also completed over 59% of his passes last season at Boston College and has had a strong touchdown to interception ratio throughout his career. Those are the things you're going to have to cite and go off of when judging Anthony Brown and what he brings to the table because, as I say, some of it is through really no fault of his own. He's gotten hurt a couple of times. So his number of games that you're going to be able to cite and go over, it's limited. It is. It's limited. There's no other way around it. It's, it's unfortunate. It stinks. It's through no fault of his own. It's not like he got benched. Got hurt twice. So there's a fewer, there's just a lot fewer games for him to go off of. And frankly, part of the timetable as far as that went into his decision making process in choosing Oregon and also Oregon's pursuit of him uh, more aggressively was coming after the Rose Bowl because it didn't have an offensive coordinator nailed down at the time which is part of what led Jamie Newman to Georgia. Now, he was probably going to end up at Georgia regardless, to be quite honest. But be that as it may, uh, it was a factor. And by the time Joe Moorhead got hired, remember, Moorhead was still the coach at Mississippi State when Oregon's playing in the Rose Bowl on January 1st. So he ends up getting hired. Okay, then his recruiting picks up and all the rest. They pursue Anthony Brown. He visited uh, early last month, visited Eugene before everything got turned on its head. He visited the campus and then ends up committing to Oregon and Joe Moorhead in that offense. Now, when he was at Boston College, he was running the offense under Steve Adazio. Adazio is an Urban Meyer guy. Obviously, if you followed anything at Colorado State and the fact that Adazio ended up there, uh, there was a lot to be said for the fact that Meyer helped him land on his feet at that job. Be that as it may, Adazio runs... Um, a bit of a, I don't want to say traditional exactly, but it, it, bottom line is for a dual threat quarterback like Anthony Brown, if you want to look at his statistics and his rushing numbers and say, well, wait a minute, this is a dual threat guy. How come he only has this many rushing yards? Well, that's a little bit of a, a fair criticism, though I would say it's more of a criticism of Adazio and how he chose to call some plays and chose to utilize uh, Brown's mobility than it was necessarily anything having to do with Brown. When it's just something so uh, systematic and approach, that's much more having to do with how they wanted to utilize a player. Now, Brown is not Justin Herbert in that he's not a six foot six quarterback who was weighing in in the 220s. He's shorter. He's still in the 220s, but he's shorter. He's like 6'2". And that's a big difference compared to 6'6 at that weight. So... Brown does have the mobility, does have the athleticism. If you watch some of his highlight tapes, you see some of that. You see his ability to move around, adjust the pocket, uh, scramble, etc. And you also see, does he have a big arm? Yeah. Yeah, he can really, really wing it down the field. Now, that's that shows both in his completion percentage and his ability to throw down the field. Now, look at some of the game breakdown. And even with the really nice touchdown-interception ratio he's had throughout his career, if you go and look at this, this is a byproduct of the ACC, not a byproduct of Anthony Brown. Look at who they played and look at some of the success or failure against whom they played. Look, he can't play defense for Boston College. He can only go out there and do what he can. But fact is, is, is Anthony Brown a three-year starter and have experience that nobody on Oregon's roster has? Yes, absolutely. 
May he even have some mobility that some of these guys don't have. Yeah, to an extent. We'll see with Robbie Ashford how that looks exactly. He's a mobile guy. And that's not to say that Tyler Shook's not, or but it's just he might have more mobility, more of running ability than Oregon's present quarterbacks. That's fair. But in viewing and assessing and, and truly assessing the caliber of competition that Anthony Brown played and how he played against some of it, there's a bit of a range there. As good as his numbers are, it is not as though he was lighting up the ACC against some of the better teams in the ACC. First off, go back to last year, there was no good team in the ACC outside of Clemson. There weren't any. That's why Clemson was not the number one or number two team in the country, if you can recall. Go back to the playoff that, undefeated or not, it's why nobody gave them much credit because they didn't play anybody. The league wasn't any good, and there's something to be said for that. Well, the same holds true for other players who played in that conference. And, again, this is not a knock on Anthony Brown. He didn't even have a chance to play Clemson last season. He didn't have a chance to play at Notre Dame last season, and he didn't have a chance to play in the bowl game against Cincinnati. So by the time the season was over, Boston College played a few good teams. Unfortunately, Anthony Brown didn't get to play any of those teams. He got to play Virginia Tech in the season opener, played well, played quite well. But Vatek got better as the year went on. At the beginning of the year, Vatek was playing awful. In week two, they played Richmond. You can take zero from that game whatsoever. Week three against Kansas, he only completes 50% of his passes. One touchdown, no picks. But Boston College not only loses, loses horrifically. Lost 48-24. Now that's more on the defense than the offense, but be that as it may. Kansas got one of its better wins of the season for a massively rebuilding program against Boston College and had a lot to do with how we all viewed Les Miles having a successful, relatively speaking, successful first year and Steve Adazio getting fired. Boston College beats Rutgers the following week, and of course Rutgers fired its coach. It lost to Wake Forest in a close game where Brown threw two touchdowns, completed 70, you know, 21 of 29 is 72.4% for 265, had two touchdowns but two picks. Now, again, he's not the reason why necessarily they lose the game, but you know, you play a team like Wake Forest where you're talking about two graduate transfer quarterbacks this offseason, well, Newman was on the winning side and Brown was on the losing side. And then against Louisville, Brown got hurt in that game. He went 6-7 for 193 with a touchdown, and that's where he goes down. And Boston College went on to lose the game. So point is, is going off of and looking how, how he played over the past couple of seasons, really throughout his career, he didn't get to play all that many great opponents. And when he did, were his numbers there? Yeah, and last year he didn't get to play a great opponent. The year before, when they played Clemson, he went only two of three. He, he barely did anything in the game. I don't know. I didn't go back to look to see did he get hurt or what happened, but because he came back, he played the week before and he played the week after. I don't know if he got dinged up or something that week or whatnot, but bottom line, he didn't do much against Clemson. And in the regular season finale back in 2018, he completed left, less than 50% of his passes for three touchdowns and two picks in a 42-21 loss to Syracuse. Now, some of it is when you get down a bunch, you're going to have to wing it. So again, not all on Anthony Brown by any stretch of the imagination. Boston College wasn't a very good team, and that's not all 100% on him. And then go back to his freshman year again, played some good teams in Notre Dame, Clemson, 
Vatek at the time was ranked NC State. But you're going to be talking about judging a true freshman in 2017. What does that really matter as a graduate transfer in 2020? Not a whole heck of a lot, other than the fact that he has game experience. So he brings something very different to the table. That's a positive. Oregon adds experience to its quarterback room. That's a positive. And Anthony Brown spoke with Andrew Nemec of OregonLive.com uh, earlier last week, or I should say late last week, uh, on Nemec's radio show. And I know that uh, Andrew did a story on it and quoted Anthony uh, about just his recruitment to Oregon and, and why he chose Oregon. And part of it was the Oregon coaching staff did not make any proclamation. He says the Oregon coaching staff did not make any proclamations or promises about playing time or that he's going to walk in and have the job. Now, to be clear, if a quarterback is going to come in as a graduate transfer, obviously time is of the essence. They are trying to put themselves in the best position to showcase their talents and then be drafted in the NFL. You are not going to do that if you have no chance whatsoever of playing. You're going to go to a place that is going to offer you the best opportunity to play and showcase your talents. Or at least you think. All right. Well, this is going to be a competition between Anthony Brown and Tyler Shuck. Quite the competition. And we'll see how it sorts itself out. But let's take it you know, on its face that Oregon staff truly did not make any you know, guarantees there. And, very, and by the way, very few staffs do. The, the staffs that generally do stuff like that either are staffs who in the long run you end up hearing about that they made some promises that they couldn't live up to, which is not something that has been a, a regular calling card of this staff, or staffs that are going about such a massive rebuild that they need to bring in a good number of transfers, graduate transfers, JUCO transfers, whatever the case may be, in order to replenish and restock and reload a roster. And the number one recruiting pitch is, hey, yeah, we're base. We're not "quote unquote" guaranteeing you playing time, but we're telling you, like, look at what we're dealing with here, and you're more talented than what we got. Let's face it. So, yeah. Well, you know, hard to say that Oregon would necessarily be making that kind of push and you know, selling pitch to Anthony Brown. He says that's not what was said. He says that they would just provide him an opportunity to go out and compete for the job. If you take that at face value. And in speaking to Anthony Brown's uh, quarterback coach, private quarterback coach who he was working with, they reiterated the same thing. And I followed up then and said, all right, well, in that case, like, all right, if that's really the case, I mean, again, people are trying to put themselves in the best position. So basically, like, all right, if you weren't promised that, then why choose to come to Oregon? Because, again, you want to go out, you know, this young man wants to go out and be able to showcase himself. If he isn't, you know, that's <laughs> time is a little bit of the essence here. You know, if you, if you miss your opportunity, you really miss your only opportunity and then, then it's over. And it's speaking again to Anthony Brown's private quarterback coach who he's been working with throughout his recovery. And also previous to that, for that matter, uh, this is a uh, Quincy Avery, by the way. And I'll have a story on this um, at some point this week. Quincy, Avery, Quincy Avery, Anthony Brown's quarterback coach had a great line to me on this regard. He goes, look, I work with all the, and he works with Jamie Newman as well, by the way. He goes, I work with all these guys and, you know, we discuss things, et cetera, et cetera. But here's another way of looking at it. You're going to go out and compete. 
if you can't win the starting job, in this case at Oregon, and if you can't win that starting job now, then as far as the NFL is concerned, then you don't deserve to be there. So if the pursuit is about the NFL eventually, and we're only talking a year from now, okay, well, if you're going to make it there, you better be able to prove it that you're able to do it somewhere in college. If you're not able to do it there, then don't worry about the NFL. The NFL was never going to be a thing. And there's something to be said for that. That was really, that's as blunt and and one, very true. So that's a, a very, very accurate and blunt way of looking at it. That, all right, fine, nothing's guaranteed. You're right, nothing's guaranteed in the NFL either. So you may all want to get there, but if you're not able to do it here, well then, don't worry about what the NFL is going to worry about because then that was never really going to be in the cards anyway. And that's a pretty level-headed way of approaching it, to be quite honest. Now, of course, we have yet to hear from Tyler Shuck in this regard. Uh, I'm not sure how he's feeling about all this because the time that we spoke to him leading up to uh, the Rose Bowl, the Jamie Newman report came out, I think, right after the Rose Bowl media day where we got the full team. And then we didn't get to talk to him during the very beginning portion of spring practice there. So you had the report initially, which obviously ended up proving in the long run to be substantiated. It didn't matter, uh, but it proved to be substantiated. And Oregon's pursuit of a grad transfer quarterback didn't slow. It just moved to the next target, who then ends up joining the Ducks. Well, hey, Tyler Shuck hasn't shied away from competition before. You got to remember, go back a year, folks, or a little over a year, really. Go back to the 2018 season. Shuck was redshirting. But hey, uh, Braxton Burmeister, you know, he was the backup. And he had played. And ultimately, he was the one who chose to leave, not Tyler. And we'll and look, we'll see what Braxton Burmeister brings to the table at Virginia Tech probably next fall because he sat out last year. But point is, is Tyler Shuck hasn't shied away from competition before. Now, this is the most significant competition he will have faced to date, but the Ducks wanted the Ducks coaching staff wanted to bring in a veteran hand with game experience. Hey, there's nothing to knock there. This quarterback room lacks experience. It now has an addition coming in that has ample game experience. Now, how much that translates from ACC to Pac-12, the rest that's that we'll find out. We'll see. And it may all be a moot point, and it may still be Tyler Shuck's job. Because Mario Cristobal said on the call Friday, Tyler Shuck entered spring as the starter, and he leaves it as the starter. Now, that's totally separate from Anthony Brown's commitment. Because as of Friday, even though Brown had committed, Mario Cristobal can't talk about Anthony Brown because he's not enrolled yet. So he can't even acknowledge that publicly. Now, what he did say is that they are going with any position that they look to increase competition and et cetera. So, all right, it's a nod to say, basically, yeah, they feel pretty good. They're, they feel really, really good about Tyler. Mario Cristobal, if there was true massive issues or hesitation or trepidation about Tyler Shuck being the starter for Oregon in 2020, he would not have had to have bent over backwards to praise Tyler Shuck. He could have been much more general in his comments on Friday. 
much more. Could have said basically the same thing he said, but with, you know, a little bit less fire to it. And it would have been fine, and it wouldn't have set any bells or alarms. It just would have been, all right, well, you support your guy, and you brought in another guy, and we'll see how it looks. Here, it's still, no, this guy is still atop the chart. And while that's obviously true, that didn't was not going to change after four spring practices, how Mario Cristobal went about answering the question on Friday still says that this program still has all the faith and belief behind Tyler Shuck right now. And a competition will happen, and we'll see. And as we all know, there's nothing to say that just because a competition goes one way that there can't be another package for a different quarterback, that you hope to knock on wood and that no injuries happen, but that what's basically what's the backup plan? In essence, if you didn't have Anthony Brown join this team, all right, Tyler's a starter, who's the backup? And you could say, well, obviously it would be Jay Butterfield or Robbie Ashford. We're well, talking about true freshmen, guys. And I know that people can point out that, hey, well, this true freshman played really well. This guy won a national championship, or this guy won a Heisman. Or the, the number of guys who you can point to over the years who have been able to do that is still very finite. And for a team that is as loaded as Oregon is defensively, and obviously has a lot to reload with offensively, you still nevertheless want to have, you know, not only as good a chance as possible and as good a leader as possible at the quarterback position under any circumstance, but this is a team that's here to compete now. Putting that all on the shoulders of a true freshman who would be coming in as the backup, granted, but go down the road of, all right, well, if something were to happen, then who? Well, it's one of the true freshmen who's never been in a game before. Well, that's that's a tall order, man. Whereas, all right, if Tyler's still the starter then you've got a very veteran and game-experienced quarterback as an option in Anthony Brown. Conversely, if it's Anthony Brown, you have a backup in Tyler who you feel very confident about. And again, you still might be able to come up with personnel packages to utilize both. It's not as though two quarterback systems have never been done before. I'm not a big fan of those myself, and I'm not suggesting that's what's going to happen. But point is, is, I'm never one to dislike more options. And we're going to be able to talk about quarterback competitions for months and months and months, presuming that there is still a season in the fall. And again, that's something we'll be able to talk about for months. But to get to another topic here before we wrap up this edition of the program. We mentioned last week the NCAA would be granting additional eligibility to all spring sports athletes uh, whose seasons were due you know, cut short due to the coronavirus. The question entering last week was, would they grant it for all the athletes or would it only be the seniors? And played the audio last week from uh, my interview with uh, Oregon baseball coach Mark Wazikowski, where he was not sure at that time that it was going to be for all of the players. He thought it was possibly going to, probably going to be only for the seniors. In the end, the NCAA did the right thing. It gave all spring athletes the additional year of eligibility back because it was the just thing to do. Now, the smart thing they did, and I, I know smart and right and the NCAA all in the same sentence. It's it's hard to rack your brain around, but they actually did really do the right thing, not only for the players and the athletes, 
But they did the right thing by the institutions, too, because there is the recognition, there has to be, that financially speaking, this is a major, major cost to especially the smaller schools. It's a major cost in general, but it's a massive cost to smaller schools outside the Power Five in particular, who in those sports, you're talking about overwhelmingly non-revenue sports, uh, sports that are operating at a massive budget loss in the first place, to then be retaining however many senior players who would have been completing their eligibility and have them back, great for the player. But for some of these small schools, their budgets are not going to be able to handle it. So with that said, they provided the flexibility to the member schools to say, all right, you have the option for how much scholarship you choose to offer this returning senior. If a returning senior in these sports, and these are overwhelmingly equivalency sports outside of women's tennis, women's tennis is the only one that's a headcount sport where they're on full scholarship, just like football, men's and women's basketball, and uh, gymnastics. Otherwise, Everybody else is on equivalency. They're on some percentage, whether it's 25%, 50%, 75%, whatever the number is. Okay, well, if this senior outgoing was on a 50% scholarship, you can choose to retain them at the same 50. You can choose to retain them at 40, 30, 20, whatever the number is, or zero if you're not able to afford it. And that's going to lead to some tough conversations in the weeks and months ahead. already has at a lot of places. The number of players in the spring sports who have already entered the transfer portal is very, very high. Now, it started with the Ivy League, who came out and announced they're not great that the NCAA granted the eligibility, additional uh, eligibility, but they're not. Uh, They're not going to be uh, allowing and retaining those athletes. But that's the Ivy League. That's their problem. For the Power Five and for the top-level college sports, we're going to be hearing about in this week mainly, I suspect, from what I've been told, from uh, what a source had indicated to me late last week, was that uh, Oregon Athletics has, and the spring sports teams have indicated to the spring sports athletes, especially the seniors, because obviously the other players were going to be coming back anyway, but to the seniors, who, and there were 53 seniors on Oregon's numerous spring sport rosters throughout the spring. Now, bear in mind, of those 53 Nearly half were in track and field. 25 of the 53 were in track and field. And of that 53, not all of them are on scholarship at all. There are plenty of players who are walk-ons. And frankly, depending on the sport, you may know, you may not know. And you definitely don't know the exact scholarship breakdown of their teams unless you're the player and the coach and somebody in the compliance department or what have you. But outside of that, that's between them and, and the, their families and the coaching staffs and et cetera. That's not you know, necessarily for public uh, consumption unless they want it to be. But point is, no, not all 53 are on scholarship in entirety. But for those who are, decisions are to be made and to be relayed to the athletic department sometime early this week. I don't know if that's Monday or Tuesday or sometime Wednesday morning. I would think earlier than later, certainly. But the players are being given basically at least a week from the decision last week, last Monday afternoon, to at some point early this week to inform Oregon's athletic department of whether if they are going to choose to return, if they would like to do so at Oregon, 
where the source also indicated to me that what the agreement has been, what has been relayed to the players is if you choose to return, you will return on the same level of scholarship that you were on before. And that's for baseball, for softball, for any which of the spring sports. If you choose to return, you're on the same. Now, this is a blanket uh, uh, statement. Could there be an exception along the way here? I'm not saying that there isn't, okay? A source relayed me some information. There's 53 players. There's 53 conversations. I can't say that all of them 100% are that way. What was relayed to me was the players who were on scholarship can return at the same level and choose to do so. And they have to tell the athletic department sometime early this week if they intend to do so or if they're going to look to transfer or if this is just the end of the line for them and it's the end of their athletic careers, uh, disappointing as that may be, and that even with the same level of scholarship they were at, their family still has to cover the rest. And that's something that we've discussed before many times. I've talked about before that in equivalency sports, the burden, a portion, a part of the burden still falls on the athlete and their family. Yeah, there are select instances of players in those sports who are on 100% scholarship, but they're very rare. And I can't speak to every single circumstance of the 53 seniors at Oregon. I, you know, Again, that's between them and their families and et cetera. And if they want to go out and speak to that, that's fine. But the, the questions that we should have more answers to throughout this week ahead is, is Haley Cruz coming back? Is Cole Stringer and Gabe Matthews in baseball coming back? Uh, some of the track and field athletes, et cetera, will find, should find out throughout the course of this week, at least behind the scenes. And then once it's known and said and signed off on behind the scenes, then whether players choose to come out and speak to it themselves and make it public or what have you, uh, we'll see. And we'll certainly do our best to bring you uh, that information as it becomes public and as we're able to relay it to you or as I'm able to gather it myself through my own means and mechanisms, we'll, we'll look to do that. And we wrap up today's uh, edition of the program, this week's edition of the program, with uh, just a couple of news and notes. Uh, Oregon women's basketball had two freshmen uh, transfer last week in Holly Winterburn and Lucy Cochran. Both were international players who completed their freshman years. They were coming off the bench, and it was a veteran team with all-world talent in the starting lineup. These are players who are going to be coming off the bench in the first place. I don't know the reasonings behind it. Winterburn at least issued a statement. Cochran has not said anything publicly. So for those who want to know, well, why did they choose to leave? I can't speak to it. Uh, 90-plus percent of the time when players choose to leave, it is a playing time-related issue. That said, I don't know how they would have expected to get more playing time this past year, certainly. Uh, When you look ahead to next year, Oregon has a lot of talent coming back and plenty of talent coming in in their signing class. So... Could they Could they have looked at it and said, well, it's not about this year. It's about what are my chances of increasing my playing time next year? And, well, you know, it's not going to be very easy because the starting lineup is going to have Aaron Boley and Taylor Chavez and probably Jazz Shelley, Niara Sabali, and Sedona Prince in the lineup. Well, in that case, and by the way, in five McDonald's All-Americans in the freshman class coming in, that's that's a lot of talent. That's a lot of talent. That's a good thing if you're an Oregon Ducks fan. But if you're Holly Winterburn and Lucy Cochran, could you look at that and go, well, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm appreciate, you know, what I had going on this year, but uh, playing time, you know, I'd, I'd love to play more and may not be very easy to do that. 
Perhaps. Perhaps. And if it's something other else involved, that's for them to speak to. I, I don't know. But that's what happened last week. Also last week, uh, Sabrina Ionescu, Ruthie Hebert, and Satu Sabli earning more accolades. They collect uh, unanimous All-American recognition as the coaches team was announced. Ionescu picked up the Wade Trophy, a repeat honor for her. She took home the Naismith Trophy. She's the first Oregon player to ever get that. Those are both National Player of the Year awards. All three of the big three are up for individual awards Monday morning. And Ionescu and Hebert are both up for the Wooden Award, also a National Player of the Year award. That'll be announced Monday afternoon on ESPN. That'll do it for this edition of Ducks Confidential. Look forward to bringing you more next week.